Amen. You can be seated. And as you're seated, children, you can be released for Children's Church. You can go right back here to where you see the flag in the back. And as they're making their way back, I just want to say thank you to our worship team. What many won't know is that last night, uh, Anthony, our worship director, got very sick. So he calls the team. So please be praying for, for, for them that uh, he feels better. I think it's been passing through their home. So please be praying for them. But who you saw up here this morning are leading not to put on a production, but to have a heart of worship, to be able to sing together as a congregation. And they stepped in to that, to, to, to lead us this morning. I'm so grateful for that flexibility. And I just pray that, that as we gather on Sundays, that you feel that reality. We're not here to have a production. We're not here just to give a, a talk and then to go on about. This is the family of God gathering together for the glory of God and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who we are and why we gather together as a church family. And this is part of, of the new series that we're going to be going into, a five-week series starting today through the five Sundays in August that we're entitling are we there yet? Right? The song that every child has sung on the long journey. Are we there yet? When will we get there? How much longer? What will it be like when we get there? The questions that children cry out. But in reality, I think it's often the same questions we can have in church. Right? Like, where are we going? What's this about Sunday after Sunday as we gather? Where is all this going? How much longer till we get there? What's it going to be like once we are there. The, the purpose of this five-week series is to help answer some of those questions. Why do we gather as a church? Where are we going? How are we going to get there? And I believe that this is an important time for us to be asking those questions as a church family. When we think about it, in, in who we are, God relaunched us in many ways in the summer of 2018. As, as we started here in this school, throughout 2019, God was growing our leadership team, our understanding of, of elders, deacons, how that's working together, plans for how God was moving us forward, great plans for 2020 that all came to a halt. And then we were gathering online unexpectedly in, in our own homes. 2020 brought everything to a standstill, and nationally, nationally churches have seen a 20 to 40% decrease in participation since the pandemic, and we're not an exception to that. In many ways, physical social distancing has led to a spiritual isolation. Many people are, are disconnected, isolated. I believe that's why now in this series is why we need to say, who are we? Where are we going? Why do we exist? This call to, to gather together. How is God leading us? Because I believe that for our congregation, God has a purpose and a plan. He has something in store for us. And I believe that, that what God wants to do in us as a congregation is equally as important as what he wants to do through us for his glory. And I believe that God is calling us on this journey together. 
not alone, not as individuals, but together as a church family. But before we get into the, the how and in what of, of who we are as a church, I want to look at our motivation. What drives us? What compels us through the, the joys and the challenges that we'll face? Like, think about this for a moment. What's a hobby that you enjoy? Something that, that you give your time to, that you find enjoyment in? Like, our, our family, my wife and I, we both love travel, international travel. Right? When it's new cultures, new languages, people, architecture, landscape, food. I love going into places where the gospel has not yet been proclaimed and to be among the first who would declare that salvation is found in Jesus Christ. The joy in that. Like there's a motivation there. But the reality is, is that doesn't mean it's always easy, right? There's challenges that are faced. I'm a big guy, and airplanes are small. I don't like when people put their seat back. I'll put my knees into their seat and tell them the seat's broken. I don't like the little trays and silverware. I land, and the food that I'm looking forward to can turn my stomach. I don't learn languages very well. Then all the experiences aren't fun. There's malaria and dysentery and passports and visas. So why do it? Why endure all of that? If our motives aren't clear, then we will just seek the comfort of our own couches in isolation. What compels us as a church? This is what I want to look at this morning. That our mission, our vision together as a church is that we are compelled by the gospel to, prove, to become disciples who make disciples. This is what I want to be our shared motivation as a church family. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the glory of God is what drives us. It is what compels us, motivates us, moves us. It's what encourages us and strengthens us to overcome the challenges we will and do face as a church. It is our foundation upon which we stand. It is the destination to which we are called, the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the means and the power by which we will achieve that. It is everything. So what now? If the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus is everything, then we need to understand two things this morning. One, what is the gospel? What do we mean by that? And two, why does it matter? Here's my concern this morning. That some of what I'm going to say this morning is familiar. In familiarity breeds apathy and indifference, and you will be tempted to mentally check out because it's familiar. You've heard some of it before. And so as we talk through this, and as we talk about what is the gospel, I also want to ask the important question that I love to ask, who cares? So what? Why does it matter that this is true? See, I don't want to just describe for you what the gospel is and then leave it at that, but I want to explain why it matters, how it impacts not only our story, 
but how we hear and listen to other people's story. And how we engage our community and friends and our own lives with the gospel. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. Lord, I thank you for this time this morning. I pray that you would capture our imaginations this morning. That what is familiar would not lead to indifference, but a fanning of a flame within our hearts. Lord, that you would stir and cultivate within us a passion for your glory, a desire for it, a hunger for it, Lord, a deeper, let the roots of our hearts sink deep into the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you do your work in us this morning? And in Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite passages is found in 1 Corinthians 15. Kind of in the very beginning, when we talk about the question, what is the gospel? What do we mean by that? What does it mean? Like When we say the word, it gets thrown around all the time in churches. Gospel this and gospel that, but what is it? We hear the Apostle Paul says, now I would remind you, I would remind you again, you heard it before, but I'm going to say it again. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Euangelium, it means good news. It is news to be proclaimed. It is something that has happened, that is being declared. Brothers, I would remind you of the good news that I preach to you. You received it. It, 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 It's the gospel in which you stand. It's the gospel by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Have you believed in vain or is it the truth upon which we are standing? It is the power of God unto salvation. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is our foundation. This is our hope. And then we say, well, what is it? What is this good news? And the Apostle Paul continues, for I delivered it to you. I gave it to you as the very first importance. If I could say one thing, one thing and one thing only, I received it and I'm passing it on to you. Here is the declaration of what happened. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. We gather today, this morning, because of this truth. Because Jesus died for our sins. Because he was buried in the ground and he rose three days later. This is the motivation. This is what compels us. But don't fall into the trap to think that this is the obvious answer. See, we may step back and we're like, of course. Right? Of course this is why we gather. Why else would we gather? But in 2018, CNN did a poll and asked this very question, why do Americans go to church? And there's, if you look at the sermon notes, I'd link to the article where you can look at this. Six of the top 10 answers are this. So my children will have a moral foundation. That's why. I want to become a better person. 
I need some comfort for the pain that I'm enduring. It's a family tradition. This is what we've always done. It's an obligation. My parents make me come. My spouse makes me come. I do it to meet new people. I moved into the area and to socialize and to network. That's why I go to church. Six of the top ten answers. And is there any wonder why following a global pandemic, when we were having together at home, 20 to 40% have not re-engaged with the church? The motivation was insignificant to compel people to overcome the challenges that were being faced. We are called together because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he died for our sins, because he was buried and rose from the dead. So what? Like, really? Who cares? So, a man named Jesus died a criminal's death. They buried him, and, and now he rose from the dead. So, you want me to rearrange my life, my affections, my desires, my purpose in life because of something that happened to somebody else 2,000 years ago? Really? Who cares? Why? Why does it matter what compels us? Why does it matter this gospel? Why can't I just do what I want and ignore all this? This is where I want to talk about why it matters, the story of God, the story of the world, what gives life meaning and purpose. It gives understanding for the hopes and pains that we feel and, and the meaning behind them. <clears throat> See, the story of God, the gospel of Jesus. I want you to imagine it like a filter on a photograph. I don't know if you've ever used Instagram or something like it. I love photography, right? And you, you, you take a picture and all of a sudden, if you lay a filter over top of that image, it changes the whole feeling of that image. The, 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 the shadows can be darkened or lightened, the highlights, the contrast between them, the midtones, the, the whole tone of the picture is impacted because of this filter. It's the lens, if you will, of how you're seeing the world. This is the same thing that the gospel does. It's the worldview that impacts how we see and understand everything. It, it changes how we see that the shadows of brokenness in the world. It changes how we see the highlights of joys and celebration in the world. It impacts how we see everything. But what lens are you looking through as you look at the world? Is it through the story of God or through your own story? See, the story of God I would tell in four parts. And in these four parts, I, I want to tell us that this is something that for us, I pray that as a congregation over time, you would be able to tell on your own. Without notes, without anything, you could think through these four parts and in your own words, have a conversation with someone. That God's story would ultimately help you understand your own story. It would help you also listen to the story of the world the story of your neighbors and friends who do not yet believe. 
the questions to ask and how to listen, that the story of God would shape how we understand ourselves and the world in which we live. Here's what I mean. The first part of the story, creation. We're going to go creation, fall, redemption, restoration. In creation, we look at Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God. He created the heavens and the earth. This is where it can become familiar, but please don't just check out. Think about what this means. God, eternally existent, from the beginning of time throughout all eternity. He always was and always will be. He is all-powerful. By the power of his word, he formed and filled the earth. Everything in the heavens and on the earth, he created by his power. He is the author of everything. And because he is the author, he has absolute and complete authority over the story. Because he is the author. We are not self-made men and women. We don't determine our own purpose or meaning. Because God made us, He determines who we are. He determines right and wrong. He determines purpose and meaning in our lives. So let's ask the question, so what? Really, like, who cares? The question we have to ask here, who or what do you credit for who you are? It's your origin story because it will shape how you see everything. Where did you come from? Who do you credit with who you are? Who or what do you say, I am here because of this? Because see, some would look at the world and the lens through which they see it would say everything's random. I am just a random assortment of cells. I've been randomly put together. My experiences of joy and pain are mere chemical reactions in my brain. Life is merely to be maximized for joy in the moment before I die and become fertilizer for the next generation. That's it. That will shape how you see everything. Or or some would say, I'm just an accident. Two people who didn't use protection and whoops, here I am. Always in the way. A fast-paced world. I feel more like an obstacle than a purpose. Trying to find my own way. Who or what do you credit for why you are here? The gospel filter would say, we have been created with purpose with dignity, intentionally created, purposefully created and crafted for his glory. We bear the mark of the one who created us. We were made in his image. Every person. It changes then how we understand the world, how we understand ourselves in the context of the world. But then what went wrong? See, creation leads to the fall. You you look at Genesis chapter 3 and we see how how Adam and Eve, that they disobeyed God when he said, don't eat of the tree. And and they ate of the tree from God. It says in Genesis chapter 3, and they heard the sound of the Lord God and he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. themselves among the trees of the garden. The Lord said to the woman, what have you done? What have you done? See, when we look at what is wrong, what is broken in the world, the world as God intended it to be is broken. Creation itself groans and cries out. Mankind's relationship with God who created us is broken. Mankind's relationship with one another is broken because of sin. The world is broken because mankind rebelled against God who is the author. And each and every person then deserves eternal separation from the author and creator in death. No one's righteous. No one's good. None of us can stand here and say, but I'm the exception. No. It says we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We left God's path to follow our own path. That is all of our stories. But this is one of the key things that when we look at the world, we say, so what? When we look at why does this matter, what we believe about how we were creator or what's wrong with the world? There's a reason why people, there's a reason why culture, there's a reason why society in the world is broken. And everybody has some sort of fundamental belief that would answer the question, why are things and people not the way they are supposed to be? Who's to blame for it? See, you go out and ask anybody on the street, and everybody's going to be able to say, the world's broken. We see it. Now, why the world is broken is a completely different answer. See, I came across a a Reddit post from five years ago where someone said, seriously, the question is, why is the world so broken? Like, we see it. There's a longing to answer this question. Something's wrong. And everybody will have a fundamental answer for why it is. Why are things not the way they're supposed to be? And who's to blame? One of the first answers to this question was an expletive and then religion man. In these days of technology and science and politics, people still put religious beliefs ahead of morals and proven facts. Religion is the problem. This isn't a new idea. It actually goes back to to the late 19th century with the Enlightenment. When religion was seen as a problem, what's holding people back? It was seen as a superstition that was clouding the minds. And if, if the human race could just have reason, if we could be unfettered from this superstitious God and morals, if humanity could be free, the goodness of man would rise to the surface and there would be no more war, no more poverty, no more problems in societies and philosophers and thinkers and poets wrote extensively about the hope that lay ahead in the 20th century if we could only free the world of religion. Sidney and Beatrice Webb, who were at the foundation of the reconstruction of the British Social Welfare Society, deconstructed their Christian background to embrace this humanistic freedom. Writing in her diary in 1890, she said this, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. Their hope for the transformation of Britain was on the goodness of man. The problem 
is that we're not thinking. The problem is we're trusting in other things and we just need to think for ourselves. Five years later, she reflected on these words once again that were written in her diary and she said this, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature, repeating herself. But I realize now how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us that mere social machinery will never change. And though she was influenced by the Enlightenment, though she tried to deconstruct her Christian background, she saw in the end the problem is deeper than society structures. It can't just be fixed with human reason. The Pulitzer Prize winner and social scientist Ernest Becker wrote two books on evil, and I found this fascinating because in his early life, in the first book, as a social scientist, he wrote a book called The Structure of Evil. And in it, he said the real problem in the world, why we have poverty and why we have war and violence is because the privileged are oppressing everybody else. But if we apply social sciences to government, then we will fix the problem. Just apply social scientists, get along, rearrange structures. But at the end of his life, a book that was, wasn't even published until after he died was called Escape from Evil, a book written at the end of his life. He said this, now in this book, looking at humanity full in the face for the first time. In my previous works, I had failed to see how truly vicious human behavior is. This is a dilemma that I have been caught in, along with many others who have been trying to keep alive the Enlightenment tradition. This enormous problem to see that humanity is so evil-causing now requires some third alternative beyond bureaucratic science or despair. And he died in his hopelessness. The gospel informs how we understand why the world is broken. Because it's going to determine why we need a savior. Who is the one to save us? What is the solution to the brokenness? And the question is not just what is broken in our culture. Because we can look at various things that are broken. The question is why are they broken? Because when we only put a band-aid on the surface without getting to the root behind it, there will never be true transformation. How we answer the question, why is the world broken and who is to blame? The answer is, we are. The human heart. Because we walk in rebellion to God. And so there are oppressors, and there is racism, and there is brokenness, and there is the striving for, for power and control over people. These things exist. Why? Because we walk in rebellion to God. It is because a heart of sin The consequence of this sin is death, it says in Romans 6.23. See, because if we don't understand the problem, we're, we're going to look for solutions in anything. 
right? We're going to look for solutions in, in education. We're going to look for solutions in, in, in just having a better life, being more comfortable. Where does redemption come from? See, the gospel filter, the story of God, goes from creation to fall to redemption. To say that God created mankind and mankind rebelled against God, their creator. Therefore, only God can rescue us. We can't rescue ourselves. God has to be the one to rescue us. That our wrongs against God deserve and require death as a consequence. God is the author. The story of his glory through human history. But here's what I want us to see at the moment. Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, sin. The moment the fall happens, redemption was not an afterthought that comes later in Scripture. Redemption was spoken in the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the first time we see the good news. It is the promise that unfolds throughout all the rest of human history. God saw the brokenness of man and he didn't step back and say, oh no, what should I do now? intentionally stepped in and listened to what he says. He, God is speaking to the serpent and he's saying, I will cause hostility between you, Satan, and the woman. But between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. And he... This man from the offspring of a woman will crush and strike the head of Satan. And Satan will bruise the heel of this man. There is the promised redeemer here in Genesis 3.15. The promise of one who would ultimately defeat what is broken, who would rewrite the story. He would suffer, he would be bruised. Isaiah 53 says that, that he, this one who was promised back in Genesis, wouldn't be much to look at. He would be despised and rejected. He would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, despised and ignored. But he would carry our weaknesses. The sorrows that weigh us down would be put upon his back. That he would be pierced, his body would be pierced for our disobedience. That he would be broken, that we would be healed. This is the good news. This is where we understand what the good news that Paul called us to. His name is Jesus, the one who was promised, this one who would crush the head of the serpent. Philippians 2 says that he gave up divine privilege to take the position of a slave, being fully God and fully man. In life, he was completely obedient. In death, he died a criminal's death on the cross to be an offering, a sacrifice for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Jesus. And in resurrection, our hope is secure. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we too shall rise. Death is not final. The brokenness in the world is not final. The tears will run dry. God has given life to a new story that he is rewriting on our hearts. 
This is the gospel. This is the redemption that we hold to, that we celebrate each and every Sunday. But again, we have to ask the question, who cares? See, everybody's trying to answer this question. You're going to answer a question of where do you come from? Who do you give credit for who you are? Why are things not as they should be and who's to blame? And then the question becomes, who or what will rescue me and redeem what is broken? This is the the question our world tries to answer, doesn't it? Something's broken, what's going to rescue us? Who or what will save us? Some look to philosophy or or education, to self-improvement, to sexual freedom, to social change, to political power, to personal rights, personal freedom. My redemption will be found in these things. And they give their lives to them only to die in despair. Who or what will you look to? This is why it matters. This is why the gospel needs to be what compels us in all of life. The Christian looks to Jesus. We celebrate that he is our savior. He is our redeemer. He is our hope. He is why we gather. It is for the glory of his name that we find true and lasting joy. How does it all end? Where is it all going? What's it going to be like when we get there? This is where creation, fall, redemption leads to the fourth and final part of the story of God in restoration. At the end of the Bible, Genesis 21, chapter 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old earth and the old heaven had disappeared. And in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. It will be restored to how God intended it to be. That is the hope. The story of God does not just end with the restoration and the redemption of people here on earth, but it goes on for all eternity. It continues to a new heaven and a new earth where in eternity we will either spend in the presence of God or in separation. But who cares? What will the world look like when all is as it should be? Who or what will be the focus? See, that's the question, isn't it? This is the question that the world seeks to answer in so many ways. What does it look like when everything's made right? Who's going to be the center of it? To the Christian, the gospel shapes our perspective, a perfect world in the presence of God, His glory and our joy. This is where it's going. This is how it ends when every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is how it ends. But to the world, everyone seemingly paints on the same canvas, causing absolute chaos, each seeking to have the color of their life be the dominant story that's being told. 
Where in the end, the way it ends, the focus is me. The focus is what I want, how I think things should be. And this is where Jesus says in Matthew 16, if you try to hang on to your life, if you try to make your life the central story, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save your life. You'll find who you were truly called to be. What do you benefit? If you gain the whole world, if you gain everything you want, but in the end you lose your own soul, is anything worth more than your soul, than eternity? The lens through which we see the world matters. What compels us, what motivates us as a people matters. These aren't just four points to tell a story. It's the way that we see everything. Understand our origin, how we understand what's broken, where our hope lies, and where it's all going. If anything else seeks to compel us as a church, it will fall short and you will give up. It is only through the power of the gospel. But will we surrender to his story? That's the question I want to close with. Romans 1 verse 16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the good news about Jesus. Not ashamed. Not going to hide it. Not going to water it down. Not going to soften it. I am not ashamed of the gospel, of the good news about Jesus. It is the power of God at work. It saves everyone who believes. This good news, this good news that compels us, this good news that we have believed in, tells us how God makes us right in His sight. And this is accomplished from the very start to the very end, all by faith. It's by faith that we are saved, not of works. It is His power at work in us, in the, through us together as a congregation. So why are you here? What's your motivation each and every Sunday? Is it just to give a moral foundation for your children? Is it simply so that you can become a better person? Is it out of obligation? Is it to network for work? Or are we compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and our joy? It matters. It deeply, deeply matters. What drives you to overcome the challenges that we will face as a church family? I am inviting us, I am pleading with us to have a singular motivation together as a church family. May our foundation be in Christ. May the hope and movement of where we are going be for the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus. May the means and motivation be by faith in what He has done. May His story forever and always shape our story as a church family. Let's pray.
Lord, I, I thank you. that you have spoken so clearly in your word, Lord. That we can know our origin story, who you have called us to be, that the fullness of life is found in you, Lord. Would you protect our hearts when we try to walk our own path? Lord, would you lead our hearts back to walk in the path that you have paid that will lead to our true identity, our true self, our true and lasting joy that is found in you, Lord. Would you lead, would you guide, would you fan the flame of our hearts to not find our joy and satisfaction in other things, Lord? Would we not become complacent, in our life, but would you stir our affection and our hunger and our passion for the weight of your glory, both in our life that will lead to transformation and in the proclamation of the good news to a community that is finding, seeing the brokenness where it is not broken, where they are looking for hope and salvation and things that will not save. Would you give us as a church of voice to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that is the power of God unto salvation. Lord, use us for your glory. And in Jesus' name, amen.